Okay, why don't we start with a prayer? Dear Lord, you promised to be where two or three are united in your name. We beg you to dwell among us and open our minds and our hearts to anything you want us to say, to hear, to understand today. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I will uh, offer a few, um, some personal reflection on my apostle and prison ministry. I'll cover three topics. Uh, first of all, why, why doing prison ministry? Uh, I will have just a few notes on uh, trying to put prison ministry in the Dominican tradition. And then I will spend most of the time on my personal experience on, um, you know, how I started, what I do, and what I've learned over the years. Can you hear me well? Yeah. Okay. So the, I guess the obvious question is really why prison ministry, right? Uh, why should we help? Why should we visit people that uh, have committed often very terrible crimes that have left such a trail of destruction in their path, uh, affecting the victims, affecting the, the you know, the, the families of the victims, affecting their own families, right? Because they have parents, they very often have children that will grow up without their parents. Uh, so I think we'll basically give a long answer to that today, but uh, the short answer is the simplest. Jesus says so, right? Uh, Jesus didn't say to visit the innocent prisoners. It, uh, we know in uh, Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was in prison and you visited me. Uh, the church calls it a corporal work of mercy, right? Uh, often it's called the forgotten one. In Matthew 25, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and then it says he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. Then there are various items. There is a list uh, that includes, I was in prison and you visited me. And then we know at the end, it says, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this is one of those passages that is so well-known that uh, sometimes we know him a little too well and then we may miss something. I certainly was the case for me. Um, you know, when you think of the classic distinction between the sins of commission, you know, when you do something that wrong, something evil, and the sins of omission, when you don't do something good that you have a chance to do, uh, personally, I tend to think of my sins of commission a lot more. Uh, they are much more tangible. <laughs> it's harder for me to go to confession with sins of omission. And so I, this complacency that I had on this uh, hit the wall when uh, one day I was uh, reading this very innocuous little book from C.S. Lewis, Reflection on the Psalms. And uh, uh, there is one paragraph called Judgment in the Psalms. And uh, it says this, uh, especially to the terrible parable of the sheep and the goats. Here's what it says. This can leave no conscience untouched, for in it the goats are condemned entirely for their sins of omission. As if to make us fairly sure that the heaviest charge against each of us turns not upon the things he has done, but on those he never did, perhaps never dreamed of doing. That's one of those things that, went, that really hit me very hard. You know, the, I know some young people that they go like, Phew. 
when <laughs> it, it, it blows your mind. Um, I wonder also if, uh, if, if uh, this is really the reason why, um, you know, could be the main reason why the apostolate is not a, an option in our Dominican Rome. Um, but really, especially for us Dominicans, we have to consider the realities that there is an enormous need for prison ministry. Um, it's a very fertile ground for evangelization. In, everybody needs God, but this is particularly true in a place like prison where all they have is time. Uh, time is really a terrible thing. That's why this expression, doing time. <laughs> Um, especially for prison, which are the majority, which you don't have the privilege of uh, being able to work. Um, and so time very often leads to despair. And you can all read the statistics of suicides in prison are, are just uh, really terrible. But also can lead to God, because in prison you are less distracted by the world, and you can really ask tough questions. And also for us Dominicans, we have to realize there's a lot of ignorance on the faith. Um, some inmates are incredibly well-versed on, uh, on the Bible, but often there is a very deep ignorance. I remember one time uh, I was closing prayer, as always we close with an invocation to Our Lady, with, uh, uh, we prayed the Hail Mary. And a young man came to me and asked me, to teach him that prayer. He said, it's a beautiful prayer. I never heard it before. Now, I don't know, does it make your Dominican heart expand a little bit I, to be able to teach the Hail Mary to an adult? Um, now, I do want to tell you a little bit how we have a lot of examples of Dominicans that were involved in prison ministry, or, or we should say even lay Dominicans, third order Dominicans, um, I realized that I just did not have time to go through this in detail. When I was researching, I was finding so much, and then I, I realized I would run out of time. So I will just give you a few hints. Um, one that definitely it's a good place to start because St. Catherine is our uh, patron saint, the Slay Dominicans, and uh, it's the only one together with the Blessed Mary and St. Dominic that's actually mentioned in the rule, right? With devotion to uh, St. Catherine is mandatory for us Dominicans. So I know a lot of you are probably very um, familiar and love this book of uh, the life of St. Catherine of Siena, written by Blessed Raimondo Capo, who was uh, uh, her confessor and master of the order for, uh, for 19 years. Uh, I'm just going to read you a brief passage. Um, this is the story when there are two uh, people who have been condemned to death and they have been tortured along the way uh, to, to their place of execution. And they were completely unrepentant. They were cursing God, and there is all this story. And then she was at the house of a friend praying when they go uh, under the house, and so she starts praying. And I want to read you her prayer because the way she makes the case for a prison ministry is a lot better than what I could ever do. And she prays with her, uh, with the boldness and uh, the guts that we <laughs> we always see in her. My most merciful Lord, why do you show such contempt for your own creatures, made in your image and likeness, and mercifully redeemed by your precious blood, and permit them to be tortured in the flesh, and tortured more cruelly still by the spirits of hell? The thief who was put on the cross with you was being punished for his misdemeanors. Nevertheless, he was so enlightened by you that while the apostles were still in doubt, he openly acknowledged you on the gallows and merited to hear it said, 
today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Why did you enlighten him if not to give the hope of forgiveness to all like him? You did not despise Peter who denied you, but looked upon him with eyes of mercy. You did not despise the sinner Mary, but drew her to you. Of course, talking about Mary Magdalene. You did not reject Matthew the publican or the woman of Canaan or Zacchaeus, the prince of publicans. Indeed, you called them to you. I therefore beg you in the name of all your mercy to care for those two souls and succor them. Now, the, her prayer was so effective that then immediately Jesus appeared to the two men <laughs> and uh, asked them to convert and they asked for a conversion. It was a big deal and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. One thing that is often overlooked and C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that sin begets sin. And uh, when we talk about the victims, especially innocent victims of crimes, there is also that aspect that often for the victims, very hard to forgive. It's very, there is resentment, there is hatred, that, that's sin that begets sin. Here we have an example, you know, it, it says, faced with such a change of heart, those present were filled with amazement that the torturers themselves were moved by the sight of such devotion and did not dare continue their cruelties. So we have the example when love begets love and stops that cycle, right? End of the story, they, they go to purgatory, but she keeps praying and get them even out of purgatory and directly into heaven. So it's all about who you know. <laughs> um, now, the, I will uh, quickly move to one that you know, some of you know is uh, my uh, favorite of all the saints, the most recent saint in the Dominican order, Saint Margaret Castello. Sounds, sometimes I still catch myself saying blessed. She was canonized on April 24th of this year uh, with the equivalent canonization. Uh, I always say to people who don't know her, she's the greatest saint you don't know about because she's just phenomenal. Uh, there is a book uh, here written by a lady Dominican. Um, it's called Blessed Margaret Castello, of course. Um, and there is a beautiful passage in which she's trying to convince other Mantellate, that are the Dominican, to, to start prison ministry. And they tell her how dangerous it is. And, uh, and, and she says, you know, they initially responded negatively, describing the prison as a terrible place where it was not safe for women visitors. Blessed Mary's answer was that this seemed even more reason to initiate the prison ministry. And then uh, when it, she talks about why, and again, I always appeal to our Dominican heart, she says, according to local reports, the prisoners were chained day and night to the walls as if they were savage wild beasts. And because of the inhuman treatment they get, a number of them have ceased to believe in God. And again, that's what really sprang her into action. And there's a beautiful story of her going, there was a, a man who's, who was in prison and her son had died of starvation, just did not have a way to feed himself. And so he was desperate, he was cursing, and then she went to pray and she levitated. And that this led to a beautiful conversion there. So again, another, another third order Dominican to, to show the way. The last um, piece of evidence I want to mention is the one, really I don't have time to go in detail, but it's the one described in the booklet, A Word of Hope. I don't know if you, any of you has read the story of the only lay Dominican fraternity chapter in prison. Are you familiar with, the, with that? Oh man, you're all missing out on an incredible story. It's actually here in the US, it's in Massachusetts, in uh, Norfolk. 
And um, uh, it's also the story of a Dominican friar, uh, uh, Blessed Father Lataste, uh, Joseph Lataste, a French man, a French friar. He died in 1866 at 34. He was beatified in 2012 by Pope Benedict. Um, in the official website of the Dominican Order, you can read a bit of his story. It says that in 1864, he was sent to preach a retreat to the inmate of the um, women prison in Cadillac, his hometown. He really did not want to go because he always heard the stories of how terrible it is and these women and all the terrible things they had done. When he went, he was shocked to see that there were 400 women who had, after 14 hours of work, showed up to pray. Um, in spite of all that he had heard in his youth about these women, he addressed them from the very first day as my dear sisters, insist, insisting on this bond of fraternity in Christ that united to his listener. The preacher was surprised to see that many of the inmates were leading a life of prayer and wished to give themselves to God. Praying with them before the Blessed Sacrament, he conceived, or rather, in his own words, he received from God the idea of opening to them the doors to a Dominican contemplative religious life. He would say, if the Lord forgave them, who are we to deny them forgiveness once they are released? The community is now called the Dominican Sisters of Bethany. They are based in France, just very close to this prison, but they are around the world, and they are also in the US. So I, I exchange uh, often emails with uh, one of the sisters um, here in Massachusetts. Um, so again, it's an example of prison ministry in Dominican order. I will uh, talk to the council and maybe we'll share that story. It's like 30 pages or so, 40 pages. It's just an amazing story how this chapter came to be. And uh, I was, I, in one of the newsletters we received from the province, it talked about an inmate who was late Dominican in prison in Houston. And uh, so again, there is some, uh, I, I actually wrote an email and uh, I found out that they were all inspired by this. So again, it's really a beautiful story that we should make a little more known. Now I'll, uh, I'll pivot to more of my personal experience. Uh, how did I start? And uh, I know this, if I ever mention that I do prison ministry, the first reaction you may have is, oh, Stefan is brave, is courageous. I want to disabuse you of that notion right away. Uh, I uh, felt a call to this for years, and I just tried to find any way to buy time. So I did what I, I, I think I, it, it took me almost five years before I started. I was just terrified. I had no idea, didn't know anybody in prison. I never there, and I, the idea of going to a prison just completely terrified me. Um, so I did what I usually do. I, I read some books. Uh, I thought that was a way to keep dog a little bay, got, got a little bay on uh, for give me a couple of years. Um, then there were two main catalysts for me to really start. I was supporting an organization in New York called the uh, Hudson Link. Uh, it's not a religious organization, but, but they uh, arrange for professors to go to prisons and allow inmates to, to get college degrees and even master's degrees. Uh, they started at Sing Sing in New York, and then they expanded to several other um, uh, prisons, mostly in New York State. Now, the rate of recidivism for the people that go through the program once they are released is like 2%, less than 2%, compares to typically 60% within three years. People go back to prison once they are released. Um, 
So after a few years that I just sent some donation, nothing else, they actually asked me if I wanted to go on a visit with other donors and other people. And so it was, you know, it was a little less scary. And uh, I went to visit Sing Sing. Uh, the visit was led by the president who himself had spent 16 years at Sing Sing. When he was 16, he um, wanted to help his best friend. Uh, she was regularly abused by her father. And so he murdered uh, his friend's father. And so spent 16 years there. And when he was there, he realized that even though he was just 16, he was one of the most educated people. And so it was an epiphany for him. Again, that's a story for another day. But <laughs> um, so we, we went to Sing Sing. And um, Sing Sing is simply a very, it's just a horrendous place. Um, and this visit had a very, very strong impact on me. I, I remember darkness and uh, noise, all these metallic sounds. Sing Sing has one single block of cells with thousands of cells, one block. They, they cannot build like that anymore. They are considered too uh, inhumane. Um, nothing there seemed human. We, we were able to go into a cell and it just was tiny. You could just see a little cot and the sink and the, and the toilet. Uh, and you would see the people in the adjacent cells and just nothing seemed human. I remember the, my spiritual director a few days later would ask me, where do you see God there? Where do you know God is there? And I really struggled to find an answer. Um, now, we also went to a classroom and we went to talk to some inmates in the classroom and I, I, I really cringe now when I think how uncomfortable I was that I was sitting between two inmates and how <laughs> difficult it was for me at the time. Uh, what did I see there? I saw transformed people. Now, I know you may think I'm very naive. Uh, I know that for these type of things, of course, they're gonna choose the best stories and all of that, I know. And yet, to have people tell their stories of how education was changing them was so powerful. Um, there was a young man who shared how his little daughter would go visit all the time when she was really little. And then as she started to grow, she would not go anymore because one day she realized it was very embarrassing to have her father. It was shameful to have a father in prison. And so she stopped going. Now, this was a few years later because he was studying and he was almost, he had almost finished his college degree. He could work with her on the phone with her homework and they re-establish a relationship. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm still a little too vivid. My wife says, you're such a guy. She says, I never cry. But because I don't cry in movies, because those are fake. This, these people are real. <laughs> these people are, uh, anyway. And now he was, he was reestablishing a relationship because the, the, the new partner of the, his daughter's mother who lived with them, he, he could not help her with her homework. I remember another man, Germain. He was one of those who had just clear leadership skills. And when you have leadership skills, you use them, whether it's for bad things, which is what brought him there, or for good. He was now the one that would go into the courtyard where everybody was shooting hoops, and where if you go with books, they will make fun of you. He, he was a true leader, and so he would go with the books, and he would try to get the kids 
to go with him, showing the status quo. And so you see transformed lives, they now transform other lives. So this gave me a big impetus to start. And then the second catalyst was I joined the Lay Dominicans. I became an inquirer and I knew there was a requirement of an apostolate. And so I was just waiting to an opportunity to make uh, this commitment to God and jump into the pool. And so that's really how I started. Um, I spoke to the local priest in Connecticut, I was at the time, that I knew was acting priest of ministry. He pointed me to a group of volunteers and so I joined them. We went to a prison called Gardner in Newtown, Connecticut, the, the town unfortunately uh, now sadly famous for the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, it was a maximum security prison, but also a medical facility, about 600 inmates. I went through orientation, and orientation can be one of the most disturbing experiences if you ever are interested in prison ministry, because unfortunately, typically, the, the message is, don't come. These people don't deserve you to come. So they, the message is always terrible. Uh, there are some things I don't want to tell you that we were told because it's not appropriate <laughs> uh, in this environment. Um, but the whole point was that we should not treat them as humans because they're not. And so that was really the message. And uh, years later, I heard of several people who never went back after the orientation. And I honestly am not surprised at all. For me, though, I, I was committed now. And I went in. And it takes some months to be authorized. But the first time I went in, 10 minutes in, I felt such an idiot because five years of fear completely evaporated. Like, Completely, and that never came back once. So uh, I, you know, when you have the feeling, you know, sometimes when you discern, you don't know if you're discerning right. Well, I was, com this was exactly the place I was supposed to be. <laughs> and uh, that has never changed. So uh, really I felt silly that I waited all that time. Um, so what did they do? Every other week I would go with a group of other volunteers, usually two or three or four, and we would, we would alternate in leading a, a 75 minute session uh, with inmates on topics related to faith. Typically we would have like 10 inmates, sometimes five, sometimes 15. The topic of really didn't matter too much. Um, in, in prison miss the bar is so low because What's important is to show up. If you treat the inmates like human beings, it, it's a lot better than what they used to. And so they are so grateful for that. We had one uh, volunteer who would not say a word, ever, like ever. Of course, she did not facilitate, but she would come every time, and the inmates appreciated that. Um, I, I tend to do catechesis. Um, I, I remember talking about the sacraments, talk about the problem of suffering, God's mercy and justice, the last things, purgatory, all my favorite topics. Um, the Eucharist, Eucharistic miracles. Uh, and so I did that for five years. Then three years ago, uh, actually yesterday was my three year anniversary starting to work here. Uh, so my family and I moved to this area, and so I inquired about the uh, areas of need here. I spoke to Deacon James Booth, who runs uh, prison ministry for, coordinates prison ministry for the diocese, 
uh, we are actually hoping to have him maybe come to speak one day to us, not about prison ministry. He happens to be professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt, and so uh, we may have him. Um, he told me about the great need, especially in a prison is a little far away, a Turney, in a Turney Industrial Complex in um, only Tennessee. It's just a few miles after uh, Dixon. It's very close to the Bethany Retreat House, just a few miles away. Um, it's also a max security prison, but there's a very vibrant Catholic community there. Uh, Deacon James and I alternate every Thursday. Uh, I go there and spend an hour with the guys. Unfortunately, it takes more time to go there and to come back than <laughs> the time you have there. But uh, usually 15 to 20 people come, sometimes even 25. Uh, we read the mass reading for the Sunday, for the following Sunday, and we talk about that. I have to mention, they don't have a priest that goes regularly, and that's really a, a tragedy. Um, uh, there's nobody that goes to hear confession or say mass regularly. Now, uh, we've been trying to get priests to go, but it's very far away. Uh, last month, Father Justin uh, Reigns from Dixon actually uh, went and said mass here, confession, and he committed to go once every other month. And so that's great. We're trying to see if we can find another priest to go the other months. And uh, so at least they could have mass and confession every month. Um, Anyway, we read the scripture, and then we also bring them the Eucharist. Um, so this is what, what I do. Now, uh, what, what can I say after doing five years in Connecticut and two years here in, in, in Tennessee, especially in terms of my Dominican vocation? Well, I have to say, for years I used to teach religious ed classes to middle schoolers, and uh, I had an ulterior motive. I wanted to skip time in purgatory. I, I, I think there is a church teaching somewhere that says that if you die a martyr of the faith or teach middle schoolers, you, you, you go straight to heaven. Uh, I, I, I think it must be in the catechism. But in, uh, in the case of prison ministry, I'm not going to skip anything because I just love it. I just have too much fun. Uh, it's, um, I do the same thing I do at religious head, but they want me there. They, they're interesting, they want more and more. Um, I do want to comment on something, there is a bit of a perception that sometimes based on reality that a lot of people that do prison ministry tend to have theologically um, a bit of a liberal bent sometimes. Um, there are very well-meaning volunteers that sometimes try to um, dilute a little church teaching in order to show more mercy, right? I call them more merciful than Jesus. But uh, I, I remember a volunteer saying, you know, you're just the ones that got caught or we'll all be here. And I, I know where, where he was coming from. I, I completely understand because you are in a very difficult situation and I understand why one would want to say that just out of solidarity. I, I don't think it helps. Um, I don't do it. I'm convinced it's only through that that saves you. Um, so we often talk about judgment. We talk about uh, the need for the sacrament, especially confession. We talk about salvific suffering. Uh, we talk about the opposite way the two thieves crucified with Jesus reacted to their suffering, right? Uh, we invoke St. Dismas, the good thief, the one that uh, uh, St. Catherine was talking about, and who is the prison the, the um, patron saint of prison inmates. And yet, 
I hear stories there that are just humbling. Um, I am a firm believer in free will. It doesn't change that. And in our ability to make the right choice, when I, I often say to them, the devil can tempt you, but cannot force you to, make, to commit one single sin. But I hear stories of abuse, of neglect, uh, of family dysfunction, of mental illness, of poverty, addiction that just made me not so sure about what I would have done in their places, especially when this starts from when you are a child. It's just really humbling. Uh, again, it doesn't change the fact that we make the choices, but it is humbling. Um, it often breaks my heart. Um, I don't know what your spiritual temptations are, but uh, I'm going to make a confession. One of mine is Phariseeism, if that's worth. And uh, I think prison ministry is the primary way um, in which Jesus takes my stony heart and week by week works on it to give me a heart of flesh. Um, that's why I'm truly convinced that Jesus gave me this apostolate. Now, after seven years, back to the question that my spiritual director asked me, where is Jesus there, that I couldn't answer. I think now I know. And so I want to tell you where I found him. First of all, I find him every time in the, all the inmates that come every week and don't give in to despair. Many of them will die in prison. And when you think of it, <laughs> uh, some of those who die in prison are like 30 years old. And they come every time, every week. Um, I, found the, I found Jesus in an inmate called Roger who was homeless for a long time. He told us that in February in Connecticut, he would go to sleep thinking that now he would not wake up because it was so cold. He was grateful for having been arrested because he said he wouldn't be alive otherwise. His daughter would not talk to him, was starting as a freshman at Brown University with a full ride, full scholarship. He said once, I understand that she doesn't want to talk to me. I talk to her mom and send my love, and I pray for her, and also pray that one day she may forgive me. I found Christ in Jay. Jay is a, a military veteran who fought in Afghanistan. He said that he found Jesus mostly through the example and the works of Marcus, one of the volunteers that would come with us. Marcus was there when Jay said that, and uh, I could see from his face that he had no idea that he had had such a, an impact on Jay. I found him in David. David hanged on every word on church, church teaching, was very annoyed by small talk, because the time in our session was too precious. He would get a little mad. I had to talk to him a couple of times, because he would really get mad at the other ones that would do small talk. He said, we don't have time for that. Um, once I mentioned Blessed Catherine Emmerich to him, and two weeks later he had found, managed to get the book, The Dolorous Passion of, of uh, uh, Jesus Christ, and read it and was thanking me for that. Um, actually, David is the only one from Connecticut I'm still in touch with. We exchange uh, letters. And recently, uh, after a reading 
after reading a book, I sent him uh, a stories of conversion tied to divine mercy. I don't know if you know it, it's Lost, Loved, Found, something like that. It's a beautiful book of conversion stories. Uh, he was really struck by one story pertaining to abortion. And so he shared with me that he played a role in helping his girlfriend get an abortion more than 30 years ago. And he has a, a new understanding on that. This, of course, gave me an opportunity to <laughs> talk about confession, talk about, you know, talk about naming the child, all those things. Um, and I just sent him Unplanned by Abby Johnson, so I'll let you know uh, what he says when he sends me the next letter, so I will keep you posted. I found Jesus in the faces of many when we talked about Eucharistic miracles. The awe, the awe in those faces. They had never heard that, ever. I found Jesus in uh, Michael, an inmate here in Tennessee. He's serving time for some terrible sexual offense. And by the way, one thing that I just did not realize before doing this, I didn't realize how many men are there for decades for awful sexual offenses. I just did not realize the, how common that is. Um, one day, Michael was very proud to show me the picture of his daughter graduating from high school. He told me that his daughter called him, and it was the first time he spoke to her since she was four. One time, I saw him a little distressed during one of our sessions. I asked him why, and he said, well, we're talking about judgment, and as a convicted felon, it's not easy to hear. To hear. Now think about what an opportunity to talk about the mercy of God to somebody who has recognized, who understands what he has done, and has accepted the responsibility for what he has done. Does it make your dominion heart pulse a little faster? Michael is also the guy that now has discovered Scott Hahn. So you should have seen, seen him after reading Hail Holy Queen, which was recommended by another inmate. He was so excited. He now wants to read all of Scott Hunt's book. It certainly cost me a fortune because he, uh, he uh, uh, I've sent him three books and he keeps telling me how much he loves them, how much he, and so, you know, Scott Hunt has written like 30, so. Um, I also found Jesus in Jack. Jack was this young man who never said a word. He was an inmate who never said a word. Six months after a two-day retreat, we did a two-day retreat. Six months later, he was asked to mention something that made him happy, and he said, the retreat. And talking about the retreat, the most vivid image I have of Jesus in prison, we were celebrating the closing mass. There was my friend, uh, Father Peter Tousley, came for that. And I have this image of him elevating the host, I'm in the back of the chapel, so I see all the inmates reverently attending Mass, Father living in the host, and in the background you see two windows with the barbed wire. Talk about the picture. It was just amazing in one image to see just Jesus was there. Jesus was doing exactly what he came on earth to do. So I want to conclude with two brief stories. Um, because sometimes in prison ministry, you get a front row seat to watch uh, miracles. So you just need to show up, bring the popcorn, and, and, and see what happens. 
Uh, and I know that the church uses physical healings when for process of canonization, because you can objectively, scientifically say there was a, a disease before, and then you say what happened later that is inexplicable. But it's not because those are the most impressive miracles, right? I, I don't think there's something more impressive than uh, the conversion of a hardened sinner. So I want to read you first a letter from an inmate, some excerpt, an inmate. I didn't have actually the privilege to meet this inmate, uh, but it was given to me by my fellow volunteers. I will, you will hear the name Rita. She's the one who led our group. And this was written by an, a man, uh, Joseph, from Milford, Connecticut, who was at 25, who was sent to prison to serve a sentence of consecutive terms of 60 years for murder, 20 years for assault in the first degree, and five years for assault in the second degree. So he's one of those who knew he would die in prison. So he was sent there at 25. He sent this letter in May 2012 when uh, he was 53. So he had spent uh, 28 years in prison. Dear Rita, I hope this letter finds you well. To begin, let me say it was a pleasure to meet you and the rest of Emmaus. Emmaus was the, the name of the group. I was a little rough around the edges at the beginning, but you helped me grow with your patience and love. Emmaus was very unique to me and truly helped me prepare for this moment. Excuse my mistakes, the pain medication makes my pain stumble at that. I'm sorry that illness this last three years or so hampered my attendance, but God has his reasons and how fortunate I am to know who God is today thanks in part to you and all the others I met at Gardner. My family has rallied around me with great support and love, and I couldn't ask God for a better ending to this chapter of my life. I'm in the hospice unit, Osborne. They are addressing my pain, and for the most part, it is in check right now. I do know, though, I'm in the final stage, for my weight is peeling off. I went under 200 pounds yesterday, and that is 100 pounds less than when, you met, than when we met. You know, Rita, when the doctor came in my room in the ICU and told me my CAT scan revealed lots of bad things in my body, God was with me. Two days later, when they returned to give me the biopsy news, when he told me I had stage four esophageal cancer that had spread to my liver, pancreas, bones, stomach, lymphs, and that it was inoperable, and that I had two to four months, six maybe, a great warmth came to me. And though I first stunned, I knew God was there for a, for a great peace filled me. I immediately thanked him for he blessed me with time to say goodbye to all my family and friends, as well as the courage to face this with grace and dignity. God is good, Rita. I am at peace. The love is overwhelming, but a beautiful thing. I'd be honored if you and some of the others attend my services. Thankful lighting the candle for me. My Catholic faith is a rock of salvation for me. Joseph died three weeks later. The second story, the last one, I'll close with this, is about a man I met here in Tennessee. His name is George. When George was 22, he killed his own mother and his 12-year-old brother. I don't know the circumstances, but that's what he did. Um, we would probably be forgiven if we called him a monster. In prison, George found the Lord and was studying to become a Baptist minister when he discovered Catholicism. I don't know how. All I can tell you is that I met George two years ago, the first time I went to Turney. He was 55. 
so 33 years in prison. I was so impressed with his demeanor, his depth, his thoughtfulness. Soon after, I learned that if you need anything Catholic in that prison, like a Bible or catechism, he's the guy. We have developed a special bond, and usually he stays a couple of minutes longer than the other inmates when I'm collecting my stuff and preparing to leave. I remember one time, I'm trying to be a good Dominican, I spoke the whole time about the rosary, and uh, I was surprised that he had not made any comment. And then at the end, when everybody else had left, he told me, you know, the rosary is my favorite prayer. I said, really, do you pray it every day? He said, yes, a full rosary. While I'm working, I'm always praying the rosary. I said, wow, all 15 decades? He said, well, 20. <laughs> a little surprised, I didn't seem to be up to date with the new developments. Um, now, George, the monster, is now a member of the Militia of the Immaculata and has a strong devotion to Saint Maximilian Kolb. One day he shared with me that his dream is to one day be released and join a religious community in Illinois. But he's afraid they would never allow him to join because of his past and his age. So he's trying to develop many skills, like with computers, to increase his chance of entering if he can make himself useful to the community. As I said, sometimes as a volunteer, you just need to show up, bring the popcorn, and watch what God does. I would like to close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, you said that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Help us see our brothers and sisters in prison with your eyes, and then help us be your instruments to reach them. Send Dismas, you heard the most beautiful words a man has ever heard. Today you will be with me in paradise. Pray for us. Send Catherine of Siena, pray for us. Send Margaret of Castello, pray for us. Blessed Joseph Latast, pray for us. Father Dominic, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.